Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hannah Porter is a playwright, teacher, McDowell County Fellow, and co-founder of the Octavia Project, a STEM and fiction writing program for girls and gender nonconforming youth from underserved communities. She lives in Los Angeles, California, and is currently at work on her next novel. Let's have a warm welcome. We'll hear um, Hannah read from the book a little bit, then we'll talk, and then we'll have questions. So let's have a warm welcome for Hannah. everybody. Oh, hi, friends. All right. I just want to give a little plug. There's a um, secondhand store that I love on Lucille and Sunset, and I was walking by, and I saw this dress, and I was like, that dress looks like my book. And I thought that it was a trick of the light, and I went, went inside, and I was like, oh, this dress looks like my book. And there was only one, and it was my size. So welcome to the most amazing thing in my life, my book dress. <clears throat> so I want to say thanks so much um, to Skylight for having me. This is absolutely my favorite place to be. Um, and I want to say that I'm so, so pleased to see all of you, people that I know and people that I don't know in this wonderful space. Um, so part of what you can do, getting my book, that's so great, but you can spend some time walking through these amazing stacks. They have an amazing um, program here, too, which I'm a part of. I have a membership at the store, so I paid $25, and now I get things cheaper all the time. It already paid back for, for itself. So instead of getting things from a unnamed box that comes to our steps, we can support a space that makes us a place where we want to actually live. Yay. Okay. So I'm just going to read from the start, because uh, this is a weird one for you to just be jumped into at a not, not the start. So the seep. Tips for throwing a dinner party at the end of the world. Relax. People may think they want to, to indulge, get too drunk, incapacitate themselves with weed, but really they just want to appreciate this fragile moment while the outside world falls down. Your party should facilitate this easeful enjoyment, not lead loved ones to panic through overconsumption. Be present, and remember, you don't know what's happening in the morning, so while an, an, an orgy might very well be the perfect thing, you don't want to spend your last night on Earth trying to cajole your friends into a particular kind of revelry. Be present. 
Clean your apartment until it sparkles. Shower, of course, and anoint your body with fragrant oils, but then wear your most beloved sweatpants. Make a wide selection of delicious food, high in protein, complex carbohydrates, and healthy fats. Serve wine, but also a lovely selection of herbal teas. Juice spritzers and fancy go goblets will allow your guests to hydrate while feeling opulent. Remember, should someone start crying, don't try to shut them down or change this subject. Be present. Eventually, the conversation will flow to other things typically to the past and how great it was, even though we didn't know it at the time, and the future, that shimmering mercurial beast constantly breaking our hearts. Part one, the softest inva invasion. When the Valians first made contact, Trina, then her not-yet-wife, Deba, threw one of their famous dinner parties for a select group of friends. It wasn't difficult to keep the guest list small. Everyone was too nervous to travel far. The subways and buses deserted, but for the most intrepid or desperate travelers. They invited two beloved couples who happened to live close by and who won wondrously had never met. Emma and Miriam came first with two types of hard cheeses, three types of olives, gluten-free rice crackers, tubs of spicy hummus. Emma was French and Miriam was from Cairo, so they both really knew how to put together a cheese plate. Their little party was completed. I'm just going to saddle up to this microphone a little bit more. Okay. Their little party was completed by Catherine and Laura, the friendly, easygoing lesbians from Tennessee. They came with copious amounts of alcohol. One can always depend on the lapsed Christians to bring the bar. Pale ale for the, for the butches and drinkable red wine. Introductions were made, drinks were poured, cheese and olives exclaimed over. After a half an hour of breezy conversation, Deba brought out a tureen of her famous fish stew, finished with black pepper and a squeeze of lime. Trina passed around homemade loaves of bread, her one party trick, so easy to make, and yet everyone thought she was a magician for adding yeast to water to flour and waiting. The women sopped fragrant soup with crusty bread. A generous feeling swirled around them like a melody, like a scent, the essence of a perfect dinner party. How have we never met before, they asked again and again. But what they were really saying was, how have I only just begun to love you? Throwing a dinner party was all Trina and Deba could think to do. They had already filled the bathtub with clean water, then made sure that all of their flashlights had new batter batteries. 
they kept checking their most reliable sources on Twitter, as well as Al Jazeera, the New York Times, the Guardian. Every source said to keep calm, try not to panic, then to stop it with these suicide packs. Unbelievable, the newscasters kept saying, it's unbelievable. That word had been ringing in Trina's head all day. But what was believable about this world, about her government, about what they were doing to the planet and to, e to each other? Furthermore, what did Trina believe in with total certainty? That the sun rose in the morning? That the sky was blue? These aliens could say that the cosmos was being carried on the back of a great platypus, and she'd have to believe them. What was more mutable than her own perce perceptions? Catherine raised her wine glass. Her toast became the answer to Trina's unspoken questions. It's fine. At, at the time, Trina thought this was a coincidence. Catherine spoke warmly, as, as if she was telling a long joke. Lately, she said, I've been feeling like I'm living in the wrong timeline. I've become numb, like I'm watching my own life as a movie. That is, when I'm not <clears throat> filled with rage or with tremendous grief or with crippling depre depression. Deba hooted and then cheered. Vemma's brown eyes twinkled in the candlelight. Every day, I wake up embarrassed by my country and what we've be become. Ugh, Miriam groaned. She took on the, on the tone of a newscaster. Now more than ever, and in these trying times, Trina laughed and slapped the table. Let her finish, chided Deba. Catherine cleared her throat. As I was saying, I'm embarrassed by what we've become, then by what we have always been and have never addressed. Here, here, said Emma, raising her glass. But tonight, Catherine said, looking at your beautiful faces, you know, I can finally safely say that I have no idea what's coming. I don't know if this is the end of life as we know it, or the start of a grand adventure, or per perhaps both. All I have is my uncertainty. And really, that's all I've ever had. Everything else was a lie. She took a long swallow from her glass. So cheers, babes, to tonight. The women clapped and toasted, whis whistling. Catherine took a half bow and, and sat down. Lauren, Laura slung an arm around her wife and grinned. Trina looked across the table at Deba's round, brown face. Her cheeks were warm with wine, as pink as the inside of a, a rose. I know that I love you, thought Trina, and that's enough for me. From across the table, Deba winked. After dinner, the women lounged on the, f on the floor, and they all got a bit stoned. 
and then someone decided that it would be fun to take a bath. They would soon realize that the seep had already infiltrated their city's water supply. They were already compromised, already bodily host to their new alien friends. And, and it was through that connection that they could hear one another's thoughts, feel the same emotions overlaid with the all-consuming notion that everything will be all right no matter what. The softest invasion had already begun. I think I'm going to read a little bit more. I'm just going to take a swallow of tea. All right. Chapter two. Eventually, everyone understood that those who had already made contact felt fine about the extraterrestrial invasion, while those who had not felt no shortage of panic, despair, rage, and powerless powerlessness. There was talk of launching a war, but on what? Those who had been touched by the alien presence simply felt no fear when connected with the seep through water or bodily fluids. It was imp imp impossible to feel anything except love, joy, tenderness, and peace. But were humans still human without their worries? Or were the aliens placating them with these good feelings for some other darker purpose? The answer was, as these things so often are, all of the above. It's never how we want it. Clear cut and shining, the perfect moral center leading us all back home. The seep did love us, and it did want to help us create a perfect world, and this destroyed life as we knew it. That at first, Trina cherished the invasion, the casual overthrow of everything that had felt codified but broken for so long. In the past, she had rejected the concept that the world was becoming kinder. There had always been scapegoats and underclasses, no matter if they were locked away in prisons or working in factories in other countries. And on top of that, she was broke. She was in a fair amount of debt, and her apartment was near a Superfund site, yet she felt grateful to be close to the sub subway. Her multiple jobs didn't pay her enough. She was stressed out and tired all the time. Her, her, her artwork was suffering, and the government couldn't decide if, if they wanted to take away her health care. The aliens changed all of that. You could hold a product and feel its history, feel people's attitudes and emotions as they process the mate materials. Struggles that had felt impossibly uphill were now suddenly so clear as if everyone had awoken one morning from the same dream. It was insanity to poison your envir environment to save a dime. It was insanity to build bigger and bigger bombs to keep the peace. 
Guns were melted down into scrap metal. Police officers threw their uniforms away. Trina's inner and outer worlds expanded and merged. Her city became a tangled nest of permaculture. No separation between living, growing, making. A forest, a garden, a farm. Next to a coffee shop, a mu museum, a hosp hospital, a school. All debts were for forgiven. The student loan people threw away their phones. After years of struggle in the old scarcity par paradigm, Trina finally had the freedom to think about what she wanted to do with her co copious time. For that first year, she didn't do much of anything. She, like most people, was just really high on the seep watching her own miraculous hands as they moved, touching the wooden coffee table to connect to the essence of the tree that it had once been. Pretty boring to watch, but pretty fun to do. She spent one full summer understanding her body as a convenient container for her immortal lessons. Deba was the first to shake off their hazy, elastic, Duper. She went back to her films, finally shooting her first f f feature. This got Trina out from her days. She returned to pa painting. Eventually, her work was shown in galleries and museums around the globe. And because art was no longer a commodity, because nothing was, some lucky people had Trina's paintings in their homes. Deba started making documentaries about the Seep's new emergent subcultures, the Yellow Meeks, the Decomposer slash Living Dead, Pain Cults, Pearl Houses, that kind of thing. Trina moved into perfor performance art, both sound and video, involving her own body in the practice. She got a little bit famous and had some minor love, love, love affairs, made Deba proud of her celebrity wife. And then she got bored of the art scene, of its pageantry, of its emphasis on personality. Trina went back to school and became a doctor. How proud her mother would have been. Too bad she killed herself when the aliens came. Deba Ventrina lived and thrived, grew and changed amongst their constantly shifting, abundant planet for years and years. Until one day, when Deba looked at Trina from across the breakfast nook, then she said she wanted to become a child again. Thank you. Thank you, that was wonderful. Um, I was gonna start by just asking you to describe some of the factual architecture of the book, but I think you've covered it. I mean, <laughs> that, yeah. I, when I reread it this week, I was both like totally uh, enraptured by the, 
the way in which it figured so much about our world and our desires in this world, and also like it gave me all the, the feelings that I felt like I needed in this moment in the universe. Um, so let's dive into. I'm gonna do, let's just dive into the deep end. Um, let's. There's a lot in the book about things getting better, and even Trina, who's a skeptic and has her own anxieties about the change, is sort of admits that things are better mm. in the world when the seep has arrived. So I'm curious what you, like, what would you say is the difference between change and progress, and is progress always better? Like, talk a little bit about that. I think that the way that we conceive of change and progress, progress is not always better, but I think that's because culturally we've um, hidden so many of the costs of what progress, like what these things that feel like progress be them convenience or power or technological. Um, so I think that what I've done with the world of the seep is that I've made it so any sort of dark underbelly needs to come up. So um, like I like to think about what my life would be like, what kinds of things would I have, could I feel every single process that that either pan or that piece of cloth had been through, um, whether it was made by mm, prisoners in a privatized prison or whether mm, chem chemicals were put into the ground by its processing and or where the water treatment went to, I could go on and on and on and on and on. Um, so I think the way that we've looked culturally at mm, progress has been through this like tunnel, like pinprick of does it make this certain group of people more money, right? Um, and then the things that we do in terms of like does it quote unquote save us time? Um, and I think what we what we lose when we microwave something rather than mm, cooking. Um, is a neat way to think about the progress. Um, yeah, so I wanted to write a book where things did get better. Um, and part of because people aren't struggling to sur survive, they have to deal with all this other stuff. Um, and then the double side of this coin of being that this is now a... Um, Real reality where you choose like how and when you die, that was a whole other like range of problems and feelings that I wanted to, to explore. It's, and it feels very natural in the book that you're moving through the world and you start to feel like, oh my gosh, this issue is resolved and this doesn't, isn't a problem anymore and this is better and you feel so relieved and also this tremendous anxiety around what is being lost, even if you're not sure of what's being lost. And I think yeah. you do a beautiful job of depicting all these um, little lees behind the rock and like subcultures of people who are slowing down or dissenting a little bit, whether it's the compound or you know, some people who have formed these other subcultures. Um, but one of my favorite sort of havens and characters in the book is YD. Um, can you talk a little about who YD is? Sure. So YD is like, this is like a deep cut, but I'm gonna tell you all. Um, she's plucked from a play of mine, 
and she's actually my imagined youngest daughter of Tevia. Really? That's amazing. (laughs) I love that. I know. Yeah. So in this like Yiddish speaking, she's like kind of a butch. Um, She's been alive now for like a hundred plus years. And she's one of the people, she's one of the subcultures that she's like, okay, I know that I need to choose when I die, but I'm not going to modify my body. So she's like in a lot of pain a lot of the time. And she's like, well, I think that there's value in pain. And she makes food. on that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She cooks, she presides over this place, the shtetl. Yeah. Which is like a diner. Yeah. Okay. And... I feel like there's something wonderful about the portrait of her is that for her, she worries all the time about Trina. Yeah. And so can you say more about the relationship between, there's a lot of different forms of caretaking in the book. Like, yeah. can you say something about the relationship between worry and love? Like is, yeah. How, what is, how do those, how do those, <laughs> we're just, yeah, let's I can say a lot about that. <laughs> um, I was just home in a Baltimore or like a, a suburb. Um, where both my mother and my grandmother were there taking care of me on this part of my book tour. And it was just like, I bought a cantaloupe and then it was just like the topic of the day, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Was I going to eat the cantaloupe? Did they want me to, did did they want, should I cut it? Should they? (laughs) Did I remember that I had it? Should I sit down? It was like really extreme. But I think that it was mostly from my grandmother, but I think that my grandmother, who's 92, um, she's trying to tell me that she loves me and that she's proud of me. And those, like, she'll sometimes say that she loves me on the phone, but she doesn't say it when we're in the same place. And I think that there's just, like, there's a lot there that's blocked because of like how she's been brought up and because of like how, you know, her life is a whole other thing for a whole other time. But um, I feel it and I feel her love and at the same time, she doesn't know how to say it without like either buying me like a sweater that I don't really want or trying to make me um, consume. So, I think that I really wanted to look in, like, that part of the book, and it's funny that you pointed this out, like, feels very Jewish to me, and it just feels like um, there's something like family and body, and, like, I've made a space. I love this idea of, like, in a time with no money and people don't have jobs, I for sure think, I think that there would probably be more restaurants And from my time living communally, I think some of them would be very bad. And like, (laughs) you know, but I think that there would be a lot of them. And there would be a lot of people wanting to give that kind of caring. I mean, it's just to stay on that caretaking jag for a second. Like there is, there's so much about care, not just with YD and and the shtetl, but in Trina's desire to care for the club kids at the Horizon Line concert. And, uh, Trina carries around this medicine bag that has both tools of the trade and also a couple um, things she would carry around for Deba when Deba needed some extra help. So there's a lot of moments of caretaking and there's a moment in the book where um, someone seems in distress and we learn that nobody pauses to look at people 
when they're distressed anymore in the world of the seat because you assume that they're going to be fine. And also, who am I to say that I know what's best for this other person? So, yeah. like, I mean, are there, I hear you talking about it in places at times you live communally. I hear you talking about it in family. Like, where is, where is the caretaking in other communities that you've been a part of? And how does that, like, take other forms? I mean, I think that the boundaries are, like, there's so many things in the book that I wanted to, like, communities that I've been a part of, be it, like, queer communities or, like, new age communities of, like, boundaries are something that um, I really wanted to to explore. Um, So I think just in terms of, like, autonomy, privacy, Hey, um, there's a line in the book where somebody calls her a cap- cap- capitalist, and like that's really stings. But she's saying like, "Get the fuck off my porch," and they're like, "You don't own this property." All right, bye. Um, so I think that that like tension, um, that tension of the ways that we want the world to be and then in these spaces where we're all making the choices intentionally with one another of course it would be lovely and beautiful if like everyone did what you wanted them to do all of the time but it doesn't happen like that and that's like where the good stuff is too but there's so much tension in that like yes we could all live in this like communal house if Brian picked up after himself, but he doesn't, right. you know? Right. I didn't really mean to say Brian, I just came into my brain. But, um, so that's like a little small corner, but I think of, in terms of sharing, in terms of autonomy, in terms of like privacy and um, accountability, like as we imagine new s- systems going forward, because I think that that's the only thing that we can do at this point. It's not, it's not, it's not going to look the way it does now. I think that there's going to be a much more of like a communal vibe, whether we want it or not. Um, so thematically, there's like so much of that to chew on. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, I want to close my door and have my own space. And I want all of those things too. Well, they keep boundaries, keep things in as well as keeping things out. Right. Um, that's, there's so I just there's so many corners of this book around each of these sort of heart issues that I want to linger on. Another one, real quick. There's a moment where someone, where Trini gets asked, "Why do you feel like you need to have a job in order to be part of this world? Mm-hmm. You don't need a function in order to be here, Trina. You're allowed to be just as you are." Um, and so I feel like we were talking about this the other day. I feel like I'm tr- always trying to remind myself, like. It's the sort of wellness mantra of the moment. Like, you are enough. Like, don't <laughs> worry. Separate yourself from right. identifying through the work you do and the service in the world you perform. But reading that, I was like, maybe there's something, Trina's holding onto something valuable in seeing identity or um, a sense of personal value through the work that we do. So, like, what do, yeah, what do you make of that balance between. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was a particularly tricky thing because. Um, you know, I've been a person who stuttered since I could talk, and I have a lot greater fluency now, but um, it's something that does shift and change with me every day still, and when I was a kid, it was particularly 
fraught, and we didn't have the language that we have to talk about, like, disability now. Like, so it wasn't great. And I think that, like, for me, the pen was just my place. And I really, like, got that, like, this was something that I could do. I got it when I was, like, five. Like, oh, I can, like, write a story. And should I spend time on that? Like, I will be, like, heard and seen and acknowledged. And then I can just, like, make any anything. So I really, like, got into the, into the power of that when I was very small. And it never stopped. And it, like, took different twists and turns. Um, but I've always, like, really strongly identified as, like, this is what I d d do. And if that was taken away from me, because I spent, you know, a very long time without having a play produced and without having a b b book out. Like, I didn't need the X internal to still be like, this is what I do. If I one day woke up and was like, I don't feel the need to write, I think I would be very alien to myself. Um, so I'm trying to think about things in more of a in more of a broad way though too in terms of um there's so many different things that I care about and maybe like being a really good friend is very important to um, me and that's not something that I will ever like it's not something that's ever going to be like mon monetized or I'll win a prize or get my name in the New York Times but it's like incredibly, incredibly valid and valuable. So, yeah. This is a related question. Um, there's a dark moment where Trina wonders if everyone else in the world is right and she is wrong. And it says that her center is lost yeah. and floating. So like, how do you, I mean, it's sort do of you what you're talking feel like about. That? Like, never, I always feel completely certain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's why I'm asking you, like when you ever feel that. <laughs> What do you do to keep your center? Oh my gosh. For me, it's more been, um, looking back, I'm like 35 now. I'm in like a nice little crest where I feel like, I still feel like a very young person, but I feel like I'm no longer in my 20s. And I can look back on some things and be like, wait, that thing that I felt so wronged by, like I was the jerk in that. Oh my gosh. So um, that is a confusing feeling, <laughs> especially for someone like me who I think has a sense of like, I'm like doing the right stuff. Um, so yeah, the, or you know, or when you get something that you thought that you wanted for a long time and you realize that you're not that person anymore and you no longer want that. So those are sort of like disorientations of self. Um, but I think like unparsing, I don't know, some people do like lowercase self and like big case <laughs> self. Um, I think that there's a lot of things about me that I feel most connected to who I was when I was 12 and then all the like hormones and teenage and pressure things kind of like took me away from 
Like, I feel like I'm getting back to being, like, the rad person that I was when I was 12, and I didn't care about so many things. Yeah. But, you know, I love Trita so much, and it was important for me to build this, like, character of this, like, lady who I love and who I wanted to spend so much time around and give her this, like, beautiful, full life and then make her really suffer um kind of as a test testament to how much like good and how much love she had had like how sad would it be to like lose a marriage which is essentially what what occurs and then to just like brush it off like i think i i think like grieving and like losing that grip of like who am I if I'm not in this house or if I'm not with this person like that is like sublime disorientation when you can like reconnect to something that's maybe been buried and hearing you say all this maybe the real answer is that you lose your center and then you find your way back and that's part of what being a person is and it's painful yeah and then you reorient that that's part of the movement of being a person okay i'm gonna ask two more questions then i want to open it up to hear from y'all um okay this one i reading the book this time i was aware of how many um parents there are figures in the book how many relationships feel parental especially like mother child there's a moment where the seep sounds like a jewish mother the seep says i love you and love you i give and i give and what do i get in return (laughs) and there are times when the seep is like kind of like a needy child. There's a moment where you compare it to a yeah. stomping feet and throwing a tantrum. Um, there's also YD is kind of a mother figure to Trina, yeah. offering worry and care. And there's the fact that Deba wants to be remothered, like wants yeah. Trina's, this is Trina's partner, and says, I actually want you to be my mother. Will you be my mother? And Trina's like, I can't do that. I'm, that's not a role I'm willing to take on. Yeah. Um, and Trina also has these dreams about her father a couple times in the book. So like, there are all these relationships that are, maternal or parental, but there aren't any parent relationships at the center of the book. And I'm curious if you could say more about that. Hmm. So great. Yeah, I think like the ways that one, we draw people to us and become like family, um, feels very utopic to me and very necessary. And it feels like it has something to do with this, um, something to do with my life too, but in how I would imagine a sort of immortality. Like, I love that YD is an elder. um, And that at one point, there's sort of a hint that she's staying alive really for the people around her like she probably could could be done Um, so it's so funny to me I think like who your parents are are clearly very important and I, I write a lot about those kinds of relationships but then I think our own relationship to trust and care and letting ourselves be 
vulnerable and letting ourselves kind of flail and who we flail in front of. Um, That feels very meaningful to me outside of biology. Love that. Um, Trina's name, Mm -hmm. which is Trina Fasthorse Goldberg Onecka, identifies her as having certain lineages, particularly Jewish and Native American, which are named. can you talk about your own lineages artistically? Like, who are, what are your artistic lineages? Such a good question. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, I came to novels from being a playwright, and that's how we know one another, which is very cool. Um, and there was a long time where people would say, well, what kind of plays do you make? And I would say they contain all kinds of things. They're punny and they're sad and there might be a weird dream and there might be a song but it's not a music musical and they're funny but it's like about death and um I thought that I was an iconoclast um which (laughs) was not true uh but I found out when I started to study Yiddish theater and traditions that I was like essentially writing and a like modern Yiddish theater plays just in terms of like it's a container where all these genres can kind of hop, um, having like really like language-driven, fast slap slapstick puns. Do you guys know that there was a um, traditional, there was a like Yiddish tradition of having a wedding jester, where someone just pretty much like s- did stand up, like for the town, and like made fun of the groom and the bride. Isn't that phenomenal? And like, so. I think that my background in that and then in writing plays where I can feel my training as a playwright when I read the book now in terms of scene break and beat and that's a line that we ended chapter, lights (laughs) out. Uh Yeah. Um, So that's all very meaningful to me. But um, I am coming from like a science fiction tradition too, which I like to think of... um, you know, my like my like big greats are like Octavia Butler and Le Guin. Um, Samuel Delaney has been hugely important to me, um, and they all wrote n- some straight like dystopic stuff, but a lot of like just complex allegorical futures. Um, and I think that that's what I'm really keen about, like something that doesn't feel overwhelmingly negative or overwhelmingly positive and that we really need to sit with these char- characters while they're like mired in the muck of whatever the repercussions reper- of this rea- reality is. Just letting that settle in my mind. Okay. Two things I want to do, and then we'll ha- take questions. Um, uh, one big thematic element of the book is appreciation and mm-hmm. sort of appreciating the daily realities we move through. So I just wanted to take a moment of all just like look at your neighbor and look around, look up at this tree, look at these books, look at these people, look at this wonderful human who's written a beautiful book, and just like sit with that a second. Let's just take a moment. Great. And then will you plug the Octavia project real quick? Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yes. Okay. So 
Back in 2013, I was like, writing plays is too tough. I am going to write a novel, because that is not as tough. Um, and so I started to write this novel, and at the same time, I was a writing mentor for teenagers. And I was like, wow, writing a novel, y'all, is really, really, really tough. And I went to a nice liberal arts college, and I have a safety net and all of this stuff. So I was getting these stories from these teens that were like the most inventive, wonderful sci-fi fantasies that you could like think of. And I just got it. I got that if they didn't get like a high level of su su support, none of their books would ever see the light of day. Because it takes, I mean, I can't tell you how many people have just like given me a pep talk over this like seven or eight year process of publishing my first novel. It's incredibly tough. So. I started this summer pro pro program back in Brooklyn, and it's called the Octavia Project. And the name is an homage to Octavia Butler. So we look at sci-fi sci through a lens of like criticality about the now. So we write these stories, and we think about what the future could be like. And then we use that as a way to point the finger back at ourselves in this own time. What are the sets of agree agreements that have been made that have made living in our cities the way that it does? Um, it's a way that we talk about race and about gender and about city planning and all this amazing stuff. There's someone who was a teacher at the Octavia Project right over there who's an architect. Um, she's come in several summers and done real architectural like scale models with the teenagers. So it's just, it's an amazing program. Um, this summer will be year six. We just got our 501c3 status. Um, and it's just, it's a thrilling program to like have every summer a new group and sometimes like a repeat group. There's been one teen who's done it five times of, uh, you know, every summer they can come and really feel like their imaginative lands landscapes are like truly meaning meaning meaningful. So it's clearly what I feel passionately about. Thank you for yeah, letting me talk about I'm glad it. To hear about it. Yeah. Let's have some questions. Who wants to ask a question? Is there anybody who didn't hear the answer to that question? Raise your hand if you didn't hear. Good. Okay. Okay. So um, I wanted to write a trans woman character who was uh, butch in her gender identity. 
and I wanted her to be just like at home and comfortable in her body and not feeling like she needed to use the seed to modify or to change. So basically I wanted to write a like woman whose like gender was a specific thing from her expression and identity because I think that those things are very different and they're lumped a lot of the time. Um, and then I really liked this idea of, I can't imagine what these gestures are, but if you made some sort of gesture when you meet people to like find out what kind of pronouns. And then I liked the idea of imagining like a plethora of pronouns. Um, that sounds, feels re really fun to me. And then the people who like in the seep, there's a couple of the people who choose to remain ambigu ambiguous. So I just wanted to really like celebrate and highlight that in terms of choices. Um, did I respond to your question, Jen? Yeah. Well enough, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. I do too. Yeah, I mean, from what I can tell is that it was a valued thing and it wasn't something of like a person and it was a man most of the time. I don't think it was ever not. Maybe, who knows. Um, but uh, he wasn't someone who traveled from town to town. He was someone like in the and I just love to imagine this as like this is like stand, stand, stand up, like the Jews inventing stand up comedy in the Pale of Settlement back in the day. But apparently, it was his job to like make fun of particularly like the bridal and groom parties. So, you know, people would come up and bring presents, and he'd be like, That's what you brought, that's not so nice. You know, look what she brought, that's much better. You shouldn't be friends with them. But it was all in this like very like loving, yeah. I know, sounds great. Well, and I love it too. And the you know when people get married now, it's I think it's a very different thing. And you know, I can imagine if you're getting married. I know we all have this hazy like fiddler on the roof thing. And I think living in the shuttle was actually like brutal and really hard. And people were very poor. But um, you know, this idea that like a wedding is for everyone to attend. And it's like a, festi fe a festival. It's like something that we all do. Yeah. What else? Book questions, Yiddish theater questions, yeah.
Hmm. So I write plays. No, I write novels the way you write plays. <laughs> this is my writing of buddy. Yeah. Um, whereas you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Uh, and I did that with this novel. Um, and I'm just about done with the second book now. It's not a sequel. It's a completely um, different book. But that one I've rewritten now many, many times, too. Not as much as I did with The Seep, because I think I learned, you know, a lot. But um, I threw out hundreds and hundreds of pages. And with plays, I don't do that. I will add, and I will cut, and I will rewrite. But I don't overhaul the skeleton the way that, you know, just building like a cohesive novel where you want the pages to turn. Do you feel similarly? I just feel like we have to, she writes both plays and novels too. So do you, do you feel like that? I feel like I also overhaul plays sometimes, but I also feel like I know the the swoop of a play and so I can enter it and find I like the swoop of it is one of the things I first things I know about it yeah and with writing this book I also didn't know what I just I didn't know what I was doing so it really the second draft was like a maybe 30 percent holdover from first to second draft yeah other questions yes oh my god <laughs> The book is about the end of a marriage, so, um, hmm. Hmm. Just talk about this at the bar, too. But, um, basically, I think it's, uh, in any relationship, I think that it's really important for people to listen when the other people tell you what's important to them. And I think that um, when I look back on any of my failed relationships, I can see the times, not every time, but I can see a time when that person like looked at me and said what was important to them, and I could have seen in that time that that wouldn't mesh with me. And I was like, well, we're all changing all the time, blah, blah, blah. And I think um, the writing life is really tough and I think that there's something so um, amazing about being the partner of a creative person who you know you get turned down more than you not and you have to be fine with that and then it's like if you get successful not everyone's gonna like it and you have to be fine with that like you have to do it because you want and then all the external stuff you have to figure out how to be un unattached, which can be very hard, especially if it's like responsible for your li 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 livelihood. So, you know, I think that it's, um, it's tricky stuff. And I think that it's really important to our souls to make the things that we feel called to make, whether or not anybody else cares about them. Let's take one more question. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Oh, great. Oh. Let's do one more question. 
Thank you. Brian has one. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Did that feeling strike you before the story that was shown in the novel was there, or did you have a story and you're like, I'm not gonna make this one as wonderful as I did Moe because this is Moe? Or were there moments where you were writing this and you're like, Yeah. I never thought that it should be a play, and I think like there's something so nice about it's a very internal b book, and you're basically dealing with one person's emotional process through this like grief, um, and there's a lot of jokes too. So I think uh, it was very clear to me that it, it wanted to be a book, and then. Um, you know, I'm glib when I say I started to write a book because I didn't think it would be tough, but um, plays are very much like a blueprint for other people than to come make it. Like, a script is not the play. Like, the play is when you go see the play. Um, so I felt frustrated that my scripts were just kind of like hanging about, except when I self-produced them in like basements, which is um, so I thought that I could write a book, and should it never be published, I could hand it to y y you, and we could commute, commute, communicate. Like the loop would be completed. Having completed that loop, let's um, get books of the <laughs> get copies of the book if you don't have one and would like one. Um, Hannah will be up here signing copies. Um, let's have one last round of applause, and thank you all so much for being here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.